0: Thank you very much, uh, Therese, and also um, to your colleague for your invitation. It's really lovely being here, and it's been a fascinating day. Um, I stand between you and coffee, so I'm well aware that the shorter I keep this, the better. So I'll do a combination of uh, reading from what I've written, but also uh, summarising where I can. So I'm going to start by skipping much of the introduction, which I think makes uh, makes sense. we already heard uh, one example. This is always a problem when you go later in the day. Other people nick your examples. Uh, so I think it was Bruno already mentioned John Boehner's remark about Ted Cruz. But the, the starting point, of all of this is, of course, that uh, I think we live in a world that barely conforms to the sort of democratic peace theory, which is beloved of many liberals. Because in the world that we live in, demonization and notions of evil seem to be uh, almost ubiquitous. So we have John Boehner calling Ted Cruz uh, Lucifer in the flesh, while of course Donald Trump has accused the entire party establishment uh, of a relentless witch-hunt against uh, himself. You know, and There are lots of other examples around the world. The Russian President Vladimir Putin is regularly referred to as a cold-blooded KGB killer, leading a criminal clique that wages war on its own people and neighbouring countries. And meanwhile, the Russian authorities and state media blame all evils in Russia and in the world on the West. Uh, and so it goes on, this of course, echoes the Cold War, where we had uh, the Soviets calling the West uh, just capitalist imperialists, and Reagan calling the Soviet Union famously uh, the evil empire um, and of course, going back a little bit further than the Cold War, or rather the end of the Cold War since seventy nine and the Iranian Revolution, Tehran has viewed America as the great Satan, uh, while of course Americans Uh, and others speak of the swivel-eyed mullahs in very unfavorable terms, probably accusing them of barbarism, which makes the medieval sultan Saladin look like a saint, or or at least a gentleman dressed all in white as he goes on his conquests. Of course, I'm not suggesting there's any moral equivalence between uh, different regimes around the world, between capitalism and communism, Western democracy or totalitarian regimes. However, it's far from clear, I think, where the liberals themselves live up to the supposed superiority of their own values. Now, the point I want to make in this paper is not just one about hypocrisy and double standards. We've always heard that. Everyone is hypocritical at some point, and everyone has double standards. That's a really, uh, I think, uh, trite and lazy remark. I think the question I want to raise is more fundamentally about the logic of liberalism. What really underpins liberalism? Because we tend to think of liberalism as a sort of Pretty sort of positive, you know, optimistic outlook on the world. I want to suggest it's actually, in anthropological and ontological terms, profoundly pessimistic. And the first point, really, I want to make is in relation to uh, liberalism's self-understanding. So the first section is about the debasement of virtue, and I'm going to refer very briefly to Machiavelli, Hobbes, and Locke, but really just to put some names to this. At the height of the Cold War, to come back to the examples just given, George Kennan, the architect of containment, who had been invited to give the BBC Reith lectures, said this, and I quote, There is, let me assure you, nothing in nature more egocentric than embattled democracy. This is interesting, I think, because we maybe live in another era of embattled democracy today. And he continues, It soon becomes the victim of its own propaganda. It then tends to attach to its own cause an absolute value which distorts its own vision. Its enemy becomes the embodiment of of all evil. Its own side is the center of all virtue. End of quote. So this, I think, is quite a nice way of saying that very often when you're sort of on the back foot and defensive, you tend to sort of see the world in very dualistic ways. You know, we're the good guys. We're fighting the evil guys. And it's all very simple, isn't it? And you kind of feel good about yourself. There's a measure of self-righteousness that's pretty... uh, Pretty striking. But I think Cannon was only half right, because the kind of common characterizations which I've already mentioned at the beginning, I think uh, do betoken of a modern Manichean dualism between good and evil, which does seem to underpin much of liberal democracy, or at least certain variants that you can find in North America and perhaps also elsewhere. I mean, we remember, we all remember George W. Bush saying, you know, you're either with us or the terrorists. You know, so, again, this dualism clearly recurs. But I think we can go further here. And I want to go further to suggest that liberalism actually privileges vice over virtue because it views evil as more fundamental than the good. Already with Machiavelli, we can see a consecration of evil as politically more real than the good. And that, in turn, I think translates into a vision of the city that, contrary to Plato and Aristotle, is not governed by goods and ends, about which we have to debate which priorities to attach to these goods or those, and which ends to pursue in common. But instead, for Machiavelli, the city is essentially governed by competition for survival and power. So, in The Prince, in chapter 9 in particular, it's the exercise of violence and the use of fear that regulates civic life, not the pursuit of peace and not the practice of virtue. Here, one might object that the term liberal suggests to many today a more easygoing, optimistic outlook, one that celebrates universal freedom, universal equality, the pursuit of happiness, and so on. And we also uh, very often uh, associate liberalism to uh, individual rights, to fundamental liberties, which are supposedly upheld by a state whose sovereignty (coughs) derives from the people and whose powers are split between the three branches of government. So, you know, how come... Uh, the kind of history of political thought doesn't seem to uh, conform to our view of liberalism. But as I said at the beginning, I think to the contrary of this supposed optimism, at the core of a searching critique of liberalism lies, I think, the argument that it's far too gloomy a political philosophy. For liberalism and its various authors assumes that, uh, or rather, uh, yeah, for, for liberalism and its various au- authors assume that we are basically self-interested, fearful, greedy, and egoistic creatures unable to see beyond our own selfish needs and therefore more prone to violent conflict. This is a profoundly pessimistic view whereby human virtue is not redefined, but in fact rather dismissed. And it's just this view that ultimately informs the three primary founding fathers of liberalism. Machiavelli, I've already mentioned, but also, of course, in the 17th century, Hobbes and Locke. Instead of inherent virtue, one has here the notion of originally self-possessed individuals, mutually contracting to ward off the threat of the other, and thereby to conserve and even promote, by artificial means, their supposedly natural self-possession. In other words, liberalism is also very circular. It assumes we're self-possessing, and it ends with the idea that we should be self-possessing. Just like you you start with a state of nature that is violent, then you have the Leviathan that regulates violence, so kind of the original violence to assume is also the violence, in some sense, you get in the regulated form. This kind of circularity of liberalism, I think, is also... Very striking. Indeed, the triumph of liberalism, more and more you could say, brings about the war of all against all, that Hobbes of course spoke about, and the idea of man as a self-owning animal, which of course is what Locke was writing about. But these were just liberalism's presupposition. But even if over time we can see how liberal institutions and ideas have brought this about, it does not thereby prove those presuppositions. Because it's only liberalism that has produced in practice the circumstances which it originally assumed in theory. In other words, liberalism tries to legitimate its own position by bringing about the very assumptions it makes. So it assumes there's violence, and then it has a central sovereign that behaves essentially just through coercion. It assumes we're self-owning, and then it makes everything about property rights, in particular individual property rights. So in this manner I think liberalism does mark the unnecessary victory of vice over virtue. We're selfish, we're greedy, we're distrustful of others, and therefore we're also prone to violence because we always think that the other is a threat to us. You know, man is a wolf to man, and there's going to be a war of all against all. So there is this privilege of vice over virtue, if you like, of selfishness, of greed, of suspicion and coercion, over common benefit, over generosity, over a measure of trust and over persuasive power. Now, you might call these virtues, in fact, liberal, and many people would. You know, you could call them principles of liberality, but I would argue that those principles of liberality have little to do with liberalism as a tradition. We can find them in all sorts of different traditions, Western, -Western, non-Western, pre-modern and modern. Liberalism clearly has no monopoly over those principles of liberality, even if, yes, of course, liberalism has contributed in some ways, building certain institutions that have benefited many you know securing a number of rights and liberties that I'm sure we didn't have in earlier times but to say that somehow liberalism is synonymous with these principles of liberality, I think is very very problematic a similar anthropological ontological pessimism and a concomitant redefinition of virtue can be found in the republican tradition just to come briefly back to machiavelli and in that sense because the republican tradition doesn't really differ from this privilege of vice over virtue it's not really that different from the liberal tradition of course, we can have debates about positive and negative freedom, but I think, as Toy already indicated, mm-hmm. negative freedom is really what defines a lot of modern political thought. And I think the same is true for both liberal and republican traditions. Again, take Machiavelli. Virtu is the military and political excellence required to sustain collective independence and can notably be fostered by a certain controlled sustaining of factional struggle within the city, which actually serves as a training ground for the combative spirit. Thus, Machiavelli shares with Hobbes the liberal assumption of a given ontological agon, a fundamental ontological conflict, not the idea that maybe the world is originally harmoniously ordered, whether you find that in the Socratic tradition, you find that in the three monotheistic traditions, or indeed in Confucianism and in Buddhism. This idea there is some original harmony which in some point was lost, which we're trying to recover through certain institutions. This is very different in the modern political tradition of liberalism and republicanism, because this fundamental ontological agon is to be manipulated, but not really ever overcome. It's just regulation of violence, rather than an actual attempt of reconciliation and a substantive peace. So therefore, this agon is seemingly given a little more instrumental play by the Florentine than perhaps by the sage of Malmesbury. But just this dimension is an aspect of the later, much debated, politically-economic question of the relation between military virtue on the one hand in more muted commercial rivalry on the other hand. And in some ways, to cut a long story short, I think the price of the modern secularization of virtue in Machiavelli is also in some sense the fact that it's now becoming again more primitive and again closer to this uh, original idea uh, that virtue actually is just about male aggressive prowess, which of course is the ancient legacy, very problematic, which I think Judaism, Christianity, and Islam and other traditions try to modify, even if they haven't done that in reality in very uh, convincing ways in their own history. So, in some sense, Machiavelli takes us back to something which looks much more like a sort of uh, primitive, even you could say, a pagan idea of just sheer male prowess. Also, given that in the classical tradition, many virtues are associated with men, not women, and that's, of course, something which Instead, said, at least in theory, in monotheism, changed with this idea of radical equality, even if that equality was never brought about in practice. So maybe a better way than of understanding liberalism is to think of it in this, uh, in this light of anthropological and, anthropological, anthrop- sorry, anthropological and ontological pessimism. And that's, that's why the French philosopher Jean-Claude Michel has actually described liberalism as the realm of lesser evil. This idea that actually liberalism institutes this new empire or realm of lesser evil. Liberalism portrays itself as the best of all possible realities in a world of necessary evil. So evil is assumed to be fundamental and necessary, and liberalism is just the least bad option, a bit like what Churchill said about democracy. But here we can also see a constitutive paradox of liberalism. On the one hand, the liberal vision rejects ideology and utopian politics as it conceived itself as a politics of lesser evil and aims to bring about the least evil society possible. So it's almost post-ideological and post-political in its outlook because it associates violence and conflict with ideology. And this is grounded in the liberal claim that any invocation of positive principles such as truth or goodness or any other substantive principle will just lead to a tyranny of the good. And since we can't agree on what the good is, we have to agree to disagree and just put in place procedure because that's all we can ever agree on. When you have substantive values, like notions of truth and goodness, you will essentially have more evil. That's the liberal assumption. But on the other hand, the liberal claim to liberate people from this tyranny, by appalling negative liberty instead of imposing substantive value ends up morphing into a new, you could even say, quasi-tyrannical order. Because the pursuit of lesser evil, rather than the common good, progressively becomes just as authoritarian as the tyranny that liberalism purports to oppose. Why? Because liberalism, in the name of being superior to all ideologies, ends up ruling out plurality, shutting down debate about, for instance, the fundamental assumptions of liberalism, and essentially positing itself as the end of history. Right? There can be nothing other than a global convergence towards liberal market democracy, because that's all that there is. Right? So it's very odd to think that liberalism sort of tries to monopolize notions of tolerance, pluralism when actually, arguably, it always positions itself you know, above other ideologies, claiming it's much more tolerant and plural, when actually, that may not always be the case. So, liberalism's rejection of all utopian ideologies ends in the utopian promotion of an anti-utopian project. That's the strange thing. Okay? So, liberalism rejects all utopian ideologies, namely Marxism but also others, but then it itself becomes utopian. Because now it is trying to bring about a global political order that purports to be the best of all possible worlds. The end of history and the convergence towards liberal markets. Democracy is the final form of human government, as Francis Fukuyama famously put it. In this manner, anthropological pessimism is closely connected with the metaphysics of progress. This idea that history clearly tends towards progress and that there are laws of history and that one period will supersede and replace another. You know, just as antiquity was superseded by the Middle Ages and by feudalism, so feudalism was ultimately replaced by capitalism, uh, and that is where we are. Now, of course, the Marxist story goes further and says capitalism will ultimately be replaced by something else. But these laws of history and this metaphysics of progress are, of course, central to liberalism and, you could say, to uh, Marxism uh, as well. Now, I just want to make one final point before I conclude. And that is that you might say, well, this is slightly unfair because surely there's a whole other tradition of liberalism as well which doesn't at all uh, conform to what I've just said. And it's true, you might say that there is a kind of romantic variant of liberalism in Rousseau. And isn't that perhaps the truest tradition that we might want to retrieve and defend and renew and develop? Because maybe that gives us still some of those promises of liberalism that perhaps... Hobbes and Locke and Machiavelli and so on uh, do not. Well, it is true that Rousseau inverted Hobbes by arguing that the isolated natural individual is good, you know, lost in contemplative delight of the world around them, satisfied with simple pleasures and provisions. That sort of isolated image is not yet egoistic because the vices arise only from rivalry and comparison once you live in society. So in some sense, just as Hobbes is Uh, pessimistic about the individual, Rousseau is very optimistic about the individual, isn't he? So maybe there's something there that we can hold on to. The problem is that once you put the individual in a social context for Rousseau, then everything changes. Then everything becomes about the same selfishness, the same greed, the same distrust and the same violence, to which the answer is what? The social contract. So whether you start with Hobbes and Locke or Machiavelli, or whether you start with Rousseau and arguably with Kant, you always end up in the same place. You need a social contract to regulate our supposed selfishness, greed, distrust, and disposition to violence. So just as Hobbes is pessimistic about the individual, Rousseau is pessimistic about society. But either way, it's a pessimism. Okay, so you have a pessimism of the individual or a pessimism of association. But that's the problem. It remains a pessimism. So Rousseau isn't really an alternative either. Again, this is of course to cut a long story Exceedingly short. And you could even make a related point, which is that yet another tradition, that of the Scottish Enlightenment, doesn't really get you out of those problems either. So you might say, okay, the Continentals have really got it wrong. Okay but so have the English. So what about the Scottish philosophers? Why not appeal back to Hume and to Smith? Because maybe here, with the kind of pre-rational moral sentiments, we finally find something that's a little bit less pessimistic, that's perhaps a little bit more optimistic about individuals and society. But I think the problem with that is, I mean, maybe leaving aside Hume for a moment, certainly when you read Smith about the wealth of nations and of course the famous metaphor, of the invisible hand, what you get is two things. First of all, you get a Calvinistic account of providence, and Smith is very much shaped by a certain strand in Calvinism. But more fundamentally, what you get in Smith is the idea that yes, of course, moral and civic virtues are very important, but they only really apply to what he calls the thick ties of family and friends. They only really, in other words, apply to what we nowadays call the private sphere. The moment you step out, the moment famously, as smith writes you go and do your i paraphrase your shopping at your local butcher brewer or baker then what then none of these virtues apply anymore not even a very general virtue of benevolence no at that point he says it's all about your enlightened self-interest you know as he says when you shop at your butcher baker, and brewer you don't care for their well-being you only care for yours and then through this invisible hand on the market, somehow you come to beneficial social outcome, where everyone can maximise what we would nowadays call our utility. Now, I'm not, of course, subscribing to Smith a kind of proto-utilitarian position that would be both anachronistic and therefore inaccurate, but I'm suggesting that what he does is he removes virtue from the marketplace and certainly also from the role of government. He basically says these are morally neutral, morally free zones. But that's not really, in the end, an alternative to the liberalism of Hobbes and Locke, or indeed to the liberalism of Rousseau. Because ultimately, virtue is always subordinate to vice. Virtue is only ever something that perhaps we're capable of privately, but certainly not something that extends to the polity. And therefore, I think this shared pessimism applies also to the Scottish tradition, and certainly to the work of Smith. So only really in one or two minutes to say, well, what might be an alternative to this anthropological and ontological pessimism we find in the liberal tradition and indeed, as I've said, in the republican tradition, at least that of Machiavelli. I think, very simply, it's to retrieve and and extend and renew the ancient principle of humanity as a political animal, as we find already in Plato and Aristotle. Just a very basic idea that we are always already political animals. We never somehow just private, isolated individuals who then have to contract around the social, who have to sort of uh, organise ourselves around a social contract, nor are we these isolated individuals like Rousseau, who are all wonderful. It's only when we live in society that we become these violent, uh, selfish, greedy beasts. And it's interesting that other traditions have, of course, expanded this notion of political animal to say that we are social animals. And that's very much what you get in anthropology as well, that almost all cultures and societies around the world view human beings as beings who are social creatures. Concerned with what? Not the pursuit primarily of maximal power, maximal wealth, but rather the pursuit of mutual recognition, a certain place, a certain role in a society. Now, of course, that can be very hierarchical and very oppressive in one way, but it can also be very egalitarian and very dynamic in another way, of course. And as I said, liberalism in its concrete instantiation has certainly liberated a lot of people for discrimination, brought about prosperity and so on. But it's still the fundamental assumption at the heart of liberalism that I think poses a problem, because it doesn't really talk about mutual recognition. It doesn't talk about the sense in which we are always already social beings. The second... Tradition, I think, that can help us think through some of these ideas is actually the early Romantic tradition. I mean, just very briefly, people like Novalis or Schlegel, Carlyle or Coleridge, Ruskin or Morris, or indeed in the Russian context, someone like Sergei Volgakov. Romanticism, at least the early Romanticism rather than the later Romanticism of Rousseau, is interesting because it helps us to recover and develop in novel ways the idea that we are social and political animals, but also crucially, that in some sense we have a natural desire for objective, substantive values. At least there is a kind of sense in which human beings are much more than just reason or just experience. We are sort of oddly uh, creatures who, are, who have a soul, who are connected to nature through sentiments, who, you know, through feeling and habit already create informal arrangements that in some sense always are more primary than state and market, almost more primary than the impersonal forces of law and contract. So this sort of sense in which there's a universal sympathy that binds us together as human beings is I think uh, a romantic idea that uh, can help mitigate this pessimism I spoke about. Crucially really I think what all these traditions have in common is the idea that in the end most human cultures and societies organise around certain shared ends. Now, of course, you might have more or less debate about what these ends are. You might have more power involved in imposing them in some cases and more free participation shaping, shaping them other. But the fundamental difference between liberalism on the one hand and these traditions on the other hand is the absence of shared ends. Not- notably a substantive notion of the common good. The moment you cut out the good and you say that we only really agree on pro- procedure and you know uh, mechanism. I think you, you leave yourself open to the problem that ultimately you'll be dominated by impersonal forces and by power, rather than by the pursuit of goods we share in and, and you know, the, uh, the reaching of decision through persuasion rather than coercion, as I think we have it in, in Hobbes or, or before that in Machiavelli. So I'll leave it there. Thank you all very much.